Good evening, everyone, and welcome to event number one of the Lebri Poetry Festival 2022. Hooray! Yes, hooray! Hooray, indeed. So, first of all, I'd like to thank our principal sponsors, who are Arts Council England, and also our sponsors for this particular event, Joe Kingham and the Feathers Hotel. We are very grateful to all our sponsors for all the help and support that they give us. This evening, we are lucky enough to have Michael Peterson and Holly McNeish. And we're going to start with Michael Peterson, who is one of Scotland's leading rising poetry stars. He, he won the 2015 Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship. After publishing two successful chapbooks and his um, acclaimed debut collection called Play With Me, his second collection, Oyster, was published in 2017 and was performed as a live show with Frightened Rabbit's Scott Hutchinson. Now in Boyfriends, Michael writes in prose, which is described by Jackie Kay as lucid, lyrical and loaded. What begins as a love letter to a lost friend becomes a hymn to male friendships. This evening, Michael will be reading from Boyfriends uh, and also a selection of poems. So please give a big lebry welcome to Michael Peterson. Hello, just going to move this slightly up, being a little bit taller than your average bear. Um, so yeah, I'm going to read a poem for you. So I'm going to read for about 15 minutes. I'm very much the starter to the main course of Holly of this evening. And sort of dessert and the cheese board, well, that's up to you afterwards. Um, so I'm going to start with a new poem. I often make a bit of a quip about not wanting to come up here flicking bits of paper around in front of you feeling like you're being flyered at the Edinburgh Festival, which is starting to happen already in June now in Edinburgh. Um, so I got, I got myself a clipboard over lockdown. I thought that's how the pros are doing it these days, isn't it? A nice, rigid piece of plastic. But I thought I had to up the ante. Couldn't just come here with any regular old clipboard to be the starter to the main course of Holly McNish. I got a red clipboard with a sparkly gold Michael splayed across the front of it. Now, with this amazing lectern come music stand, you weren't going to experience that glimmer, so we've done that bit now. Um, so I thought we'd go in fast, hard and personal, as tends to be the poetry world. Some people see it as gate-crashing someone's therapy session. I lived on my own during lockdown. I had a lot of time to do things you should never have time to do. One day I followed a rogue woodlouse around the house for three hours. <laughs> Three hours as he careered over my shag grey rug and then he just skirted off under the skirting boards as if, you know, we hadn't formed this lifelong friendship. And I never saw him again. Or I might have. Or it could have been his brother. Um, and I had a lot of time to reflect on my childhood. And this episode came back to me about a good proportion of my boyhood where I was convinced I was more feline than human child. That is more cat than boy. Um, now, it, it made for an unusual play date. I would go around other boys' houses, take off all my clothes, <laughs> declare myself the cat prince, and mimic cat-like behaviour. We had three cats at home. I think I was missing them under the circumstances. Uh, some mothers sometimes stumbled in on this and were quite rightly concerned. <laughs> in fact, uh, my mum got quite a few nervous, trepidatious calls of fellow mothers in the Portobello Edinburgh social circuit at that point in time. And there was not too many secondary invites for play dates at quite a few. The other ones kept me in, you know, public areas. Uh, so this is a poem. It took me 25 years and then I got a poem about it. So who's winning now? Uh, it is called The Cat Prince. There's a small spoiler in that. I am the Cat Prince, then and now. I am the Cat Prince, I declare. Already on all fours, already balls naked in the house of Hasty, where there's Adam Hasty, Daniel, and me, the Cat Prince. We're boyhood budbers, twelve years of silly in us. Adam laughs, frantic gasps, guffaws, then pegs it to the bedroom, anticipating the chase. Daniel, wavering, 
between cat and laddie, compañero and fugitive, succumbs to the Gnostic glamour, strips naked for a full feline transformation. I was recruiting. <laughs> Down to our little furs, little bloods, ready to bringe past the chide of absent classmates who might well hear of this and smite us with shame. We are cuddle kings, hankering for Adam's adulation. Oh, Moggy, Moxie, we embrace the cat life, vow inurement to the side effects. Carpet burns. <laughs> Bad carpet burns. Windlash pimpling. The sacrifice of language in each falsetto yowl. As hunters, we're tasked by the creator. Perhaps carpet burn affects itself there. <laughs> the recruitment continues. Our gaze, a crosshair. Our pounce, a ripple of bravura. Who else so guilefully stalks sunbeams? We'd do well here. It's those damn cats again the neighbours would learn to yop as I raced by with a robin redbreast between my jaws and Daniel finished shitting in their rhubarb patch. <laughs> to that point in the poem, I wish it wasn't true. It's convenient not to think of the killer in us, holding back our power, assassin still. As we coil our new cat bodies to a spring, Adam clambers fear to top the bed. What happens next is louder than we hoped for. Adam's mum, startled by the cacophony, arrives, then screams, curtailing the playdate. And later that night, she calls my mum concerned. Though my mum never mentions this, I can only assume she was wise to it. The mythos, the hieroglyphs, fathomed we'd soon meet the type of trouble that could really shake boys down. Long days, when the teeth tear it out of us, and the claws don't stop coming. But not yet, I hear her whisper, not without this moment's orchestra of feeling. As a boy, I was whisperless, weighed down by the nest of knots squat in my belly. As a cat, I was so much more. Of course, as mother to the cat prince, she knew all this. Thank you. So I've got this little poetic prose memoir coming out. It's called Boyfriends, Two Separate Words. It's a history of male friendship, but also friendship in general, a sort of love letter to the friends here, there and elsewhere. Uh, the friends we lost through natural exploration, the friends that passed on before their time, the friends that just dissolved out of our lives unknowingly, the friends we outgrew of. It's just a, about taking a moment, a call to action to celebrate that perhaps friendships in a way might be some of the greatest love affairs of our lives. Um, it is quite a jaunty book, but I'm going to read some of the less jaunty stuff, which then means if you do get it, it'll be a cavalcade of rainbows and unicorns. You'll have earned their stripes. Um, so I'm going to read four short sections. Um, and it finds us on a road trip, having a big seafood banquet, to very quickly losing this friend, to trying to articulate the mechanisms of grief within the body for just wishing that person would come back. And I'll call them, as is done in numerical fashion, one to four for these purposes. I feel like that would be useful. Dinner with you and Holly, these are palmary moments. No, no, I don't regret spending £75 on a seafood sharing platter. Aye, it's a crumb indulgent, and you call me a lush to Holly's hilarity. But we were twinned in this bonhomie. I do not regret us gorging ourselves on a platter boasting an estimated 40 muscles. Sixty prawn tails, six gargantuan langoustines, twelve scallops, fourteen oysters and a heft of dipping bread. A platter most definitely intended for filling more than two bellies. Of course, there is wine, 
We would not do a meal such as this, a disservice, and be without it. The platter is its own constellation. It does not fit on the table, for its circumference is akin to Jupiter, not decommissioned Pluto. You and Holly have to swap seats so as we can battle this formidable foe together in formation. We are leviathans, feasting with and on each other. The messy display attracts nods of reverence from onlookers populating the tables in orbit around us. These nods are a cloud of praise, comfortably taken. This comfort in taking praise is far too rare for brilliant you. Over yonder, the island of Skye sits down to tea with us. We address it in stories and long glances cast over. On Google Maps, this water is labelled Inner Seas off the west coast of Scotland, Atlantic Ocean. A very formal name for our salty guest, the ghost at the table. Whilst eating the platter, there is a dearth of chatter. It is given way to unwavering dedication. Let it be known it was not portentous. It is the opposite, the gooey vim of not needing chit-chat. We are apples, here's our core, sprouting pips in every belly. Even vegetarian holly soaks a muscle down. But shh, don't tell her family, or she'll never hear the end of it. This supper was garlic butter gorgeous. Love on its tiptoes, the last meal we had together, and one of your last on this whizzing planet. It isn't quite fit for purpose, but I surmise you'd chip in with Michael. It wasn't far off either. PPS. Yes, we ordered starters and all, but these were modest and too alluring to let pass by. The pudding you shared with Holly was one step beyond for me, but you looked cherubic splitting it, and you were often one step ahead. Two. You can't be dead because we are still on holiday, because my brain is still processing the images of the last few days from short-term to long-term memories, and I've not yet shown anyone the pictures from our trip. I've not yet shown anyone the pictures from our trip because I am not yet home from our trip, so you can't be dead. The ink is still wet on the page, so there's no way the book has gone up in flames. You can't be dead, because we are still mid-conversation on a hundred relatively inconsequential things, and we're about to pick those conversations back up and finish the suckers off, like we said we would. Because the moon is still the same shape as the moon we feasted off and under, and there's rainwater in my hair from that sudden downpour that caught us all out, and I've not yet emptied the sand out my shoes, and I'm still full of adrenaline from all the fun we had, nor having, and my face hasn't stopped throbbing from the laughter clouds we created, and there's that daft sauce stain on my jeans yet to be washed out. You can't be dead, because I just got an email about our arrival time from Ullapool Book Festival, and I know the answer to that question, and I don't want to let them down. 3. Defying all science, grief feels its hottest when newly lit, before it's even started smoking, before the birds know to stop singing and be forever silent, before the embargo on moting a date for the funeral's been lifted, before one of my friends knows not to throw a strop because I haven't got back to his invite for a camping trip that needs the numbers. Before any notion of talking in the past tense is fathomable. Before Auden's poem, Stop All the Clocks, could possibly be about you. Feels like a drug that's newly entered the body and will deliberately doddle in making the rounds. The flesh bullying itself, my vital organs like two best friends who've for no real reason fallen out, yet on account of their hubris will never find a way back. Grief dissects us into our most helpless matter. My bones carry an unnatural weight in them, as if the marrow is turning to lead. My gait too is off, like that bike with its bent wheel that required me to cycle like fuck just to make it to market less than two miles away. 
I am on the cusp of crying, ordering a cappuccino, but ask for chocolate sprinkles all the same because that's what I used to do. Although I've no idea why, because I've never had a sweet tooth. I am desperate for touch. Then offended by the suggestion, I find myself looking into my own eyes in every mirror I pass. Eyes which have become bells that will not stop ringing until the jar cracks or the tongue falls out. Either way, it'll be over. It's been clumsy with meaning after having prided myself on exactitude where 140 characters seems a stretch. It feels like I've had my last useful thought and now I'm salvaging ideas from the mulch. Time is standing still until it races by like a fox with a bird in its belly. Mostly, I feel exhausted, slow and eddying, heavier, whilst emptied of something I know will never be replenished that I will always resent living without. I am heartbroken and coarse whilst acutely thankful for all the wonderful, wonderful people around me. I feel important and guilty about it. Four, stop by any time. Chances are I'll be thinking about you. Anytime I'm scared, anytime I'm angry, anytime I'm empty, anytime I'm rushing towards something I shouldn't be, anytime confronted by the verisimilitudes of ocean, anytime analysing graphs on my sleep cycle app, seeking the chance to compare data, anytime in Glasgow. I live in Glasgow, any time in a swimming pool dicking about, any time there are new tattoos, any time there's a beard to scrunch, any time drinking more than I ought to, any time sad the morning after, any time when in or moving between Cushendall or Cape Town, the curfew tower and the grey hotel, any time carrying your guitar to share the load, any time watching Game of Thrones or during the post-episode evaluation. Any time there are flowers by a roadside, such a ghastly beauty. Any time I forget the details of a story only you can finish. Any time giggling. Any time on my future 37th birthday. Any time Tom Petty lopes onto a speaker system. Any time with smoked mussels. Every form of seafood. After all, oysters are best when part of a smorgasbord. Any time upset by people's mean remarks. Any time a hoodie lipped. Any time a song lyric rises up inside me. Any time I dream or nightwear which comes so close together now. Any time an owl hoots to celebrate the evasion of an awkward encounter. Any time the phone rings, then stops at Christmas. Any time someone suggests a visit to a zoo in place of a safari. Any time someone compliments or chides my book, which is also your book. Any time stalking cats, holding back their purr. Still with those cats. Sometimes when I'm snogging, is that a little odd? Any time, all the time, I need time and you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Michael. He, Michael mentioned his book. Um, it's not actually available yet, but he has smuggled some contraband copies in, which are available for sale afterwards. And both Holly and Michael will be signing books after uh, the end of the event. And if you have any questions, they'll be f um, very happy to answer them at that point. But now we come to Holly, who I, I can't only think of now as the main course. Um, I've known Holly, I've met Holly more than 20 years ago when we were both in a poetry slam and we all knew even then that she was going to be something special because a large chunk of one of her poems was in French and proper French and oh, this was a really courageous act but somehow she engaged with everybody in the audience even the ones who didn't speak French. Um, so we knew that this, you know, that she was going to come to something. And Holly gained a wide following with her book, um, Nobody Told Me, which appealed not only to all mothers, but also to 
pretty well everyone who has at some point in their lives been a child. Um, it, the Ted Hughes uh, prize judges liked it too and quite rightly gave it an award. And now Holly is back with Slug and other things I've been told to hate, which is full of poems and prose that are frank, understandable and about pretty well everything that you can think of. Holly says she is very excited to be back in Lebri again. We're very excited to have her. So let's give a big round of applause to Holly Manish. Thanks very, very much. Um, I feel bad that there's no French in this set now. I'm really sorry, but that was a really nice thing to say. Thanks. Um, I'm sure, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to mainly be reading from Slug, and I'll read for about a half hour or 25 minutes, um, and I hope you enjoy it. It's a, it's a collection of poetry and prose, and it's split into seven sections, and it's... Um, it's about all the things that... It's, it's called Slug and Other Things I've Been Told to Hate, but it's, it's not things I've been told to hate just. It's all the things that I've been sort of brought up to be ashamed of or embarrassed about, and things that I don't think we should be ashamed of, from um, grief, which I'll start on, to your appearance, to... There's a whole section on masturbation, which was a shock to me, but... Um, I, never, I never write poems for a book. I always just write, because I love writing, and then sort of get together with an editor and see what I've written about and what there's enough that I've written about to maybe form a topic in a book. And she was like, you've written enough poems about masturbating, Holly, to put a whole section in it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a section on that, a section on blood, <laughs> a lot about my grandmas. So I will, um, I'll just read a, a couple of poems from each section for you. So I hope you in, enjoy it, and then I'll, I'll read a couple from her. From another book, but I'll start with the I'll start with the grief section. So this is a couple from the the first section, and it's I guess it's just that shame that a lot of people, I think especially men, must have um, to cry or to grieve or to just show that you're upset or anything other than ecstatically happy all the time. But this is this is dedicated to I'll read one about my dad's mum and then one about my mum's mum. But this is about my dad's mum. And my mum said that I've got to make sure that audiences know that this is about my dad's side of the family, <laughs> not her side of the family. Um, and my grandparents taught me a lot. And one of the things that my dad's mum taught me was how to steal at that kind of um, level of theft, which is not like a legal theft, but it's just taking as much as possible when you're offered stuff for free. Um, my gran was very good at that. She knew like every shop, they're all from Glasgow. She knew every shop around um, Loch Lomond that had free tablet and free testers of everything in it. She's like, don't go in that one, go in that one. And then there'd be someone with a tray um, giving out free stuff. And my dad is very obsessed with, uh, on all our holidays around Scotland, if he saw like a village fate or even a school fate with the school that we had nothing to do with, he would just like <clears throat> pull the car in just in case there was sort of 10p cakes and stuff like that. Um, so I've picked up that tradition and while I'm, while I'm touring, my auntie has taught me, my dad's side, um, auntie's taught me to take a Tupperware box when I'm touring, which I now do, um, so that I can pack like a lunch from the hotel breakfast. Not from the hotel that sponsored this uh, event. <laughs> <laughs> Only from like the chain hotels that can take it, you know. So don't worry. <laughs> But this, I wrote this poem, it's called The Day I Stopped Nicking Tea Bags from Hotels, and it's a, a true story. And it's after I did a gig in York one day, the, the other poet that I was doing the gig with asked how the tour was going, and I sort of panicked and didn't know what to say to her. And I, so I, I said, oh, it's great, I haven't bought a tea bag for like six months, I've just been stealing them all from hotels. And I thought she'd be quite impressed with that, as she should have been. But um, she, she wasn't, and she just uh, looked at me and said, oh, I'm an envir environmentalist, which is obviously very good um, to be. And she said, um, oh, the more people keep stealing all those little plastic things and individually wrapped tea bags, the worse it is for the planet. And I was like, mm, OK. <laughs> that's, that's true, but that sort of ruined my whole family legacy. <laughs> So, um, so this is about that traumatic time in my life. The day I stopped nicking tea bags from hotels, or grandma, forgive me. 
This is your fault, Grandma, that I'm like this. I cannot leave the tiny shampoo bottle in the hotel shower, which I do not need to take. I do not need to take it. It will just sit in my bathroom cupboard unused for years, but I cannot leave it. Or the shower gel, or the body lotion. I don't even use body lotion. This is your fault, Grandma. I cannot leave the tea bags in the basket for the next guest. I cannot leave the biscuits in the packets in the basket for the next guest. I cannot leave the alcohol in the glasses, or the barrels, or the bottles, or all you can drink parties that you pay set fees in advance for. This is your thought grandma that night I ended up in a car park in a tutu thinking the car park was my bedroom because I had to get my money's worth Holly you have to get your money's worth or all you can drink pay in advance parties which is only five pounds to get into anyway don't worry grandma I wasn't hurt my friend found me explained that the car park was not my flat the car park space not my bedroom but grandma remember you used to order 20 packs of sugar with your tea on the train down from Glasgow just so you could steal the packs of sugar with the excuse that they would have thrown them away anyway after being on your saucer. You never even ordered tea, just a mug of hot water and 20 packs of sugar. Slipped a tea bag from your handbag so you did not have to pay full price for a cup of tea on the train today. I left a hotel room for the first time in my life without taking a single tea bag, not one. You do not need the tea bag, Holly. You do not need the tea bag holly the war is over but now i'm on the train back home staring out the window and i can feel you on my shoulder looking down on me disgusted frowning at the loss what's happened to this family what's happened to your grandchild whispering traitor whispering traitor whispering traitor thanks, <laughs> thanks. This is a very, uh, very short poem that I'll finish this section on. This is called Grandchild, and I wrote it after my uh, mum's funeral, which I had to watch on Zoom in lockdown, which was utterly shit. And um, I realised I wasn't a, a grandkid anymore, which was obviously not as dramatic as losing your grandma, but it was quite dramatic. And uh, I've, I always phone my mum up before I write a poem, or, well, sometimes, most of the time. Um, I've been doing that since I left home at 18, and she's a nurse, so she's got quite a lot of that plate. And um, I often phone her up and I was like, oh, mum, would you mind if I read you a poem? And she normally says, mm, it's a only one. Um, <laughs> and I phoned her up and said, do you mind if I read you a poem that I wrote after Grand's funeral? And she was like, yeah. And then I read it, and then she was like, well, I'm not actually a child to anyone anymore. And I was like, oh, shit, that's true. I'm really sorry. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, I'll read this one and then I'll move on to the growing up section, which is called Short Skirts and Assholes. Um, so, <laughs> Grandchild, for anyone who has loved and lost this label, I'm no longer anybody's grandchild now, just a daughter and a mother, and I know how much I'm blessed with these, but as pure enjoyment goes, I liked being a grandchild best of all. Who will spoil me rotten now? Who will feed me sugar drinks when I've just brushed my teeth for bed? Who will put the fire on when I'm toweled from the shower? Yes, yes, I know. And I'm grateful for all the time we shared. Some people never meet their grandparents at all. So many people don't. But I did. So let me mourn and let me moan. Thanks. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a, a couple of poems from another book just because I, I wrote quite a lot about being a teenager in um, this book Plum as well. So I'll read a few poems about that. But it's um, yeah, this one's called Yanking, and um, it's about I, th I think teenager being a teenager is very very hard, especially because we don't really talk to them about anything very much still. Um, and this one I wrote about being 14, although I've been asked to say it's about being 16, but it's not. It's about being 14. <laughs> and um, it is about the first time one of my friends wanted to touch her boyfriend's penis in a nice way. And she didn't know how to do that, and it was obviously before you could just Google that and um, find five million videos of how to do it, which is probably quite handy. Oh, handy, that was a pun. <laughs> no, that wasn't intentional. Um, so she 
asked basically a group of friends who also didn't have penises how to do this and it didn't really cross our mind at the time that we could just ask one of the many boys that talked about wanking a lot and who we were very good friends with what they actually do when they do this um, so we went and bought some magazines just 17 and more magazine which um, magazines for teenage girls are really good at sort of teaching them how to try to please men but not themselves um, magazines for teenage boys I think teach them to I don't know, enjoy football and look at tits, it seems. But um, So we went and bought these magazines and we learned that you had to go up and down on a penis. And we put all of our amazing 14-year-old um, sex education knowledge together, told my friend Rowena what to do, and um, she did it. And uh, he ended up in hospital. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so this is a, this is a short poem <laughs> about that and then I'll move on. Um, but he's fine now. He's had, well, <laughs> physically he's had two kids. I don't mentally know how he is. Maybe he's never been able to do that again. But yeah, so this is called yanking. Um, I've, I, I always send. I'm still friends with most of these girls I was friends with at school, and I always send them a poem if I write them a poem about one of them, so they can guess who it's about, and also to get permission to to share it. And everyone knew who this was about immediately. But um, but we. It only really crossed our mind when we were about 30 that she could have actually asked Josh, the person whose penis she was going to touch. So I think just, <laughs> just asking the person you're with didn't cross our minds. Anyway, <laughs> a long intro for a very short poem. Yanking. Apparently, up and down did not mean like a lever. <laughs> like a door handle, like a joystick, like a casino slot machine. It meant up and down, fingers curved around, gentle strokes from shaft to tip. We only learnt this after Rowena had tried the alternative yanking motion and almost snapped her boyfriend's dick. We gathered, listened, stroked her back, our impulse perfumed shirts. We stroked her back in hidden prayer. Thank fuck, she tried it first. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And this is called Call On Me. And it's, I just wrote it for friends that I missed. When I got to about 30, I realised that I no longer really lived near any friends that called on me anymore. And everyone had moved away for college or um, university or, or often with marriage. Um, and I just, just missed my friends quite a lot. Still do, really. So, yeah, this is for any friends who used to call on you. We don't call on each other anymore. We all live too far away. And now impromptu visits worry you might interrupt my day. You do not wake me up on weekends with screams pitched to my bedroom glass. Do not ring my doorbell more than once. Politer now, step off the mat. Now we must plan to meet in diaries. Don't dance in PJs, share the beds. You do not comb my hair for hours to practice plats. Drink tea instead. I love you still, my friends. I count our meetings down like holidays. But dream each time the doorbell rings. It's you. Just called to play. Thanks a lot. I'll do um I'll do a couple more from the growing up section from from Slug. But this is this is two poems about the same thing, and one's really short and one's a bit longer. Um, but this is the it's the first time I remember arguing with somebody in a position of authority, um, other than my parents. Uh, my mum said that when I said this is an intro one. She was like, was it fuck, Holly? You argued with us since you were like two years old. Um, but yeah, and it was, I was really well behaved at school and I, I didn't miss any homework, nothing like that. And the only thing I was ever told off for at school was my skirt being too short. Um, but none of the teachers ever sort of explained why annoyingly it might you know showing your thighs could be dangerous for a teenage girl they just kept telling us it distracted the boys and that it was wrong um so we had this sort of that me measure of how much thigh on show makes you you know slag deserved of unwarranted attention or not and um and I, so I kept getting taken into the headmaster's office and told that I was, it was distracting for the boys and I needed to um change my skirt and um I got more and more frustrated and I argued back on one of the occasions and this is roughly what I said but I didn't didn't really do much good so I'll read the short one and then the long one um arguing in the head's office he said my skirt was distracting the lads roll it down legal length below knees like a nun 
I said, some of the boys have their trousers so tight I can see the outline of their dicks there. I still managed to get on with my work. Um, and this is the longer version. I did look, I did look. Um, this is called When I'm Dead, We Finally Shut the Fuck Up. And um, I wrote it after I bought the Britney Spears, um, Britney Spears album, Hit Me Baby album, which was very popular for a while. And I remember my dad and my uncle talking about how genius the video was of this um, sexy-looking schoolgirl, which made me want to vomit in their faces. But um, So I was, a, I was at school at the time that that came out, and I loved the song, and I danced to it a lot. Um, and just buying the album again a, a couple of years back, I'd, I'd forgotten what the image on the front cover looked like, and I'd forgotten what the poster that I had... Um, from that album looked like just made me think of all the horrific different messages that we tell young people growing up and how dangerous it can be so yeah when i was a teenage girl the newspapers printed stories about monsters they called pedophiles when i was a teenage girl a special assembly was called which told us all to watch out for a man flashing his penis in the park near the school we all thought this was great Walked there especially, looked, <laughs> looked out for the long coat, pointed with our friends. When I was a teenage girl, one newspaper printed a list of home addresses of people they called paedophiles, vigilante justice, and one count of linguistic ignorance graffitiing the walls of a paediatrician's home. When I was a teenage girl, I bought a top ten record by another teenage girl dancing in school uniform like mine. She sang Hit Me Baby one more time. I sang Hit Me Baby one more time. Not wondering whether the clever chorus line referred to punching or being fucked hard or replaying a record. When I was a teenage girl, my friend was called a slag for owning a vibrator. When I was a teenage girl, my friend was called a prude for not getting fingered. When I was a teenage girl, the front cover of this album had Britney Spears in pigtails, looking up at a camera, as virgin as could be. I did not wonder who directed this. When I was a teenage girl, my friend told everyone he had fingered me in the garden at a house party that weekend, when really he was crying to me about a problem in his family. He apologised at school. I agreed not to tell the truth. We stayed close friends. When I was a teenage girl, I opened the CD in my bedroom, a poster folded up inside to put up on my wall. It had Britney, dressed in a virgin white vest top, with virgin white teeth, sat astride a chair, legs parted for the camera, camera zoomed onto her schoolgirl crotch. When I was a teenage girl, I was told not to use a tampon when I was bleeding playing sport, because that would be like losing my virginity to a tampon before I'd had a man in me. I was told not to put a man in me. I was told the only sex that counted was sex with a man in me. When I was a teenage girl, two teenage girls in a Russian pop video were directed to snog each other in school uniform like mine, looking sexy at the camera, singing all the things she said, all the things she said, running through my head. When I was a teenage girl, I was told off for wearing a skirt too short for school. I rolled it down each lesson and rolled it up each break. When I was a teenage girl, I was told I could not play in the tennis team unless I wore the match kit. Match kit was a short white skirt. I was on my period. I did not use a tampon yet because that would be like ruining myself before I'd had a man in me. Sanitary towels leaked a lot. I learnt how to check for blood stains between backhand lobs. When I was a teenage girl, I was told not to risk the shortcut. I was told not to walk alone. I was told not to stay out late. I was told not to masturbate. I was told not to get pregnant. I was told not to get fingered. I was told not to be too sexy. I was told not to not be sexy. I was told to sing Hit Me Baby, Hit Me Baby, Hit Me Baby one more time. In school uniform like hers, I was told all the things she said, all the things she said running through my head. When I was in my 20s, I fed my baby in the toilet for fear of looking like I was sort of trying to look sexy. I'm still not sure exactly why I was embarrassed to feed a baby with my body, but I was. When I was 30, my friend organised a Botox party before we went on holiday because apparently when you are 30, laughter is less attractive. When I was 35, I was told not to wear a vest top because women my age do not show our arms now for fear of bats apparently landing on the skin below. <laughs> When I was 40, I was told my sex drive would dry up with the bleeding, but no one talks about the menopause. When I was 50, I was told. When I was 60, when I was 70, when I was 80, I was told, I'm hoping this will stop. But my grandma is 92, and she is on a diet. Because in our family, as I've been told my entire life long, the women in our family have bad stomachs. Hold it in, Holly. Hold it in, Holly. Hold it in, Holly. When I'm dead, I'm hoping I can stretch out in my coffin... Silence in my bones. Thanks.
Thanks a lot. Uh, this is from the parenting section, and it's called Bartering with a Seven-Year-Old. <laughs> I shared my body with you for months before birth. The least you can do is offer me one of your crisps. That's it. <laughs> um, this is also from the parenting section. I'm grateful, bastard, sometimes. <laughs> Um, this is called Sweet Separation, and I wrote it just um, when my daughter was 10, and just, I guess, every step as they need you less and less is amazingly freeing and also devastating at the same time, and haven't really got my head around that quite yet. Sweet Separation. First, you did not need my body anymore. Tombstone of a star, stormed out blind and screaming. Then, you didn't need my heartbeat anymore. Cord cut and pegged till current stopped, till tide dried up till shriveled skin. Our bitter, carnal closeness dashed into a dustbin. Then you did not need me, breasts hardening, redundant, cabbage leaf companions to ease the swell of loss. Then you didn't need me to hold your head as you sat up, to hold your hand as you walked, to hold the spoon as you ate, to jog beside your bicycle, to catch a falling roller skater, to run beside your scooter, to sit beside your bed, to read a story so you sleep, to run my finger under every letter, to mouth each word you read. How strange it is this feeling, swaddling you in love just to help you leave. Um, just to say, I, I wrote that poem because I was sort of upset and happy at the same time, but... Um, I did read somewhere, I've got a daughter, just one daughter, and I read somewhere that the average age for daughters to leave home is 18, um, but the average age for sons to leave home is 35. So um, <laughs> if you do have a son and you're worried about um, missing them soon, you might not um, have that problem. <laughs> I don't really know what people are doing for their sons that are not room for the daughters. But, uh, <laughs> uh, this is called Mother Karma. And it's for anybody that doesn't have kids and doesn't work with kids and has never cared for a kid but still feels that they are placed to give parenting advice. Um, and it's for a, few, for a few friends and family members. <laughs> when my friend, who does not have a child and has never had to care for one, not even for one day, said to me as we stepped into London's underbelly rush hour legs, jumping tube to tube between a thousand child height knees, and I hooked reins onto my toddler because I dreamt each night that week of losing her in crowds of crows flocking crumbs in London caves. My child on the platform, me banging fists on moving glass, screaming frantic orders to stay exactly where you are, my love, stay exactly where you are. When my friend, who doesn't have a child and has never had to care for one, not even for one day, said to me that day, if I had a child, I would never use reins. Treating children like dogs, don't you think? I listened, I nodded, I breathed in. When my friend, who doesn't have a child and has never had to care for one, not even for one day, said to me as we ordered lunch in the cafe and my daughter from her backpack revealed three favourite Barbie dolls, curls that matched her own, skin colour just like hers, which was very hard to find and more expensive than the blonde ones, and she sat them on the table, made a castle forged of sugar sachets, took them on a thousand trips as we got our food and ate, when my friend, who doesn't have a child and has never had to care for one, not even for one day, said to me that day, if Barbie was a woman, she wouldn't even bleed. An anorexic's breeding ground. If I had a girl, I would never give her Barbies. Not a way to raise a woman, don't you think? I listened. I nodded. I breathed in. When my friend, who doesn't have a child, has never had to care for one, not even for one day, said to me that day she would never bribe her child with sweets. She would never let her play online on her phone during a sit-down meal. She would never lock herself in the bathroom in the evening, pretending she had chronic diarrhoea just to get ten minutes peace. She would never wish upon a star to break a leg or maybe two, just enough to go to hospital for the free food and a few days rest. When my friend, who does not have a child, has never had to care for one, not even for one day, when my friend who does not have a child and has never had to care for one not even for one fucking day when my fucking friend who doesn't have a fucking child and has never had to fucking care for one not even for one fucking day said to me that day she would never she would never she would never 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 when my friend who doesn't have a child told me she was pregnant I, <laughs> I grinned and said that's great congratulations <laughs> Thanks. 
I'll do a sort of love poem and a hate poem now. So this is a love poem and it's called Like Otters and I wrote it after my boyfriend took me to the Scottish Sea Life Sanctuary um, on a date and I learned that sea otters hold hands while they sleep in water so they don't lose each other and I thought that was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever heard. So I wrote a love poem for him about it. Um, I read this for the first time at um, a place called Larne in Wales and um, there was an otter hater in the audience <laughs> um, who ruined my otter poem. Uh, and he stood up at the end of the gig and he was sort of walking towards me and his wife was pulling him back. And she was like, don't tell her, don't tell her, she loves otters, she loves otters. And he shouted something horrendous about otters, which I won't share with you today. <laughs> but you can ask me later if you want to know. <laughs> so this is a love poem and then a hate poem and then I'll finish on one more so thank you so much for listening to both myself and Michael and thanks to Brenda and thanks for having us and Lydbury again Like Otters Maybe there's no fear we'll float far apart from each other in these waters as moon beckons tide but cosy in bed still I rest so much better like otters together your hand warm in mine and this is my hate poem which is for my old boss um, I hadn't shared this with people, but I'll, I'll do it now. It's a newer poem. Um, I've been writing quite a lot of poems about the nightmares that I had when I was pregnant and after I gave birth. And apparently pregnant women um, have one of the highest rates of nightmares in society, which sort of makes sense, seeing as you're growing an entire human being in your body. Um, but when I was pregnant, I had a lot of nightmares that my daughter was born and she was a goat, which I've heard is quite common, that you, like give birth to an animal and the midwives were like oh you've got a beautiful little girl and I was like no it's not it's a goat and they were like no it's not it's a girl like take her I was like I don't want a goat um so I remember panicking quite a lot in that and then after I gave birth I had a nightmare that I hadn't given birth and it was exactly the same dream that I had after I finished my A-levels when I was like 18 that I hadn't done my A-levels and I still had to revise for them um and people were like, oh, you've got to give birth next week. And I was like, no, I've just done it. And they were like, no, look down and look down. And I was still pregnant. And I was like, fuck. Um, but this was a dream that I had after going back um, to work after maternity leave. And I worked as an admin assistant to a real arsehole of a boss. And um, when I went back, there was a trustees meeting for this charity that I worked in. And I was pretty tired. And I walked in and I was serving the coffee. And somebody said how thirsty they'd been because there was no one there to make coffee while I'd been away. And then um, my boss said, God, you've obviously forgotten how to make coffee since you've been away. And stood up in front of all these other trustees and walked me to the kitchen and um, made me step by step make coffee in front of him and talked through it as if I was about three years old myself. So after that, I basically had this nightmare that I killed him in many different ways. <laughs> and I haven't shared it because it makes me sound like a psychopath, but... Um, He's now my friend's landlord, and he's still a get, so I'll start sharing it now. <laughs> I don't know what this is called, so any titles, just you feel free to let me know after. It's called Recurring Nightmare number 587 at the moment. For months, after that first week back at work, when returning from my leave, during which I grew a second heartbeat in clockwork with my own, eased it screaming through my shapeshift, shapeshift bones as death crawled close to shadow. And I, bloody, loved and broken, pushed a thousand cries by day, cradled a shawl of stinging stars each night, sang daytime bedtime lullabies as milk spilled from my insides through honeyed, heaving breasts, my entire being burst with a terrifying love like nothing I had ever known before. And you said, Christ, Holly, you've obviously forgotten how to make coffee since you've been away. For months after that, I dreamt your death in countless brutal ways, most often boiling coffee. <laughs> Sometimes you, tiny in my womb, your little bossy fists punching inside out, pleading for a breath, me cross-legged at my desk, refusing your release. <laughs> Once I dreamt a forest, each bark bearing your face, each trunk your overbearing flesh, a lumberjack those nights, I took an axe happily to your kneecaps till every tree of you was felled, two times poison in the staff room biscuits. The last one I remember woke me sweating from my sleep, my fists locked around your phantom neck, skin guilt sick, screaming, have you ever given birth? You prick, have you ever felt a skull rip your grinning dick apart? Do not patronise a mother, make your own fucking coffee, you lazy piece of shit. <laughs> 
I'm not proud of this. Never been a fan of violence. Can't stand to make a scene. I guess dreams will be dreams. Thanks. Right, very short one, then the last one. I was asked to do an, um, a poem for an environmental charity and they sent me lots of carbon-free activities you could do um, as a parent as well with children, so this isn't quite good for that. Um, but um, they sent me all those activities, uh, but none of them really carbon-free. It was things like drive to a National Trust property and have a day out, but then you had to drive there and stuff and the upkeep of a house and things. And I was trying to make a, a list of things that were totally zero-carbon activities. And I thought sex, and I was like, mm, no, because if you use a condom, that's not carbon-neutral. But if you don't, if you're heterosexual, you could get pregnant, which is definitely not carbon-neutral. Um, and then I sort of wrote it as like dancing, hugging, yeah, yeah. And then masturbating seemed to be number one. Um, so I wrote this poem about masturbating being the, uh, quite a top zero carbon equality activity, but it wasn't, um, I don't think it was what they're after. <laughs> um, so <laughs> this is called Reducing Our Carbon Footprint for anyone else who cares about the environment. Getting fingered nicely in the toilet of a pub is better for the planet than a takeaway coffee cup. That's it. Um, and this is the final one. <laughs> it's true, but maybe not so coronavirus friendly. Uh, this is my final one, so yeah, thanks again. And me and Michael will both be signing copies of the book. And if you want us to write anything in the book, then just let me know. Um, or let Michael know, obviously. <laughs> This is called To the 78-Year-Old Woman Chatting to Me on the Train the Entire Way from London to Liverpool, which is almost a four-hour journey. <laughs> there was no need to apologise for taking up my time with talk about your grandsons and how you had to catch the train alone now since your husband died and how you do not really like it, but how it's nice to get a tea and when the trolley comes again, perhaps you'll treat me to a biscuit. How you met him at a dance, how well he did the two-step, how you still turn your head when something funny comes on telly as if he's still sat in his chair, though it's been empty near ten years. How I remind you of your daughter, how nice to still be young, how your children think you're daft, how your hips have given up, how cheap you got your coat in the discount winter sale. Truth is, I spied you first, and desperate for company, I took that table seat in the hope you'd be as talkative as me. Thank you very much. Thank you.